Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. History friends, welcome to another collaboration episode. Today I am joined, as you can tell, by Jamie Redfern, the prince of podcasting to my ambassador of audio, which, yes, is brilliant and gets a laugh out of Jamie as well. So I hope you enjoy it. You might join us, first of all, for the talking that we're doing about the American Revolution, and then you might stay till the end for... How do I describe this? I don't know. I started to ask Jamie about, well, his experiences in academia and the importance of history podcasting, and you could say we went off on a tangent since this is meant to be about the American Revolution, but then, on the other hand, if you want to hear two guys, two big fans of history, two history enthusiasts, be absolutely genuine and, well, in many ways, completely comfortable with just saying how they feel, then stick around for that. It's about, like, the last quarter or so of the episode well maybe the last third or so who's measuring i'm not i'm just here to deliver you this collaboration episode me and jamie had a great time he's a great guy and if you don't know his works you should check out the history of podcast and all good podcast receptacles which i think means bin i'm not sure i think it just means okay podcast dispensary there we go that doesn't mean bin there yeah haha okay anyway <laughs> enjoy the podcast guys Make sure to let me and Jamie know what you thought about it, because, hey, we're running wild, 
and maybe someday Jamie Redfern will run wild. But for the moment, he's just trucking away, and hey, maybe he'd like a bit of your support. Follow him on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and check his podcast out. Either the history of the United States, which of course is why he's here, or the history of Hannibal, or the history of Alexander, or of course the history of the Arab Spring. Either way, thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this collab. Do you remember okay. back to when we were doing, when we started doing the History Podcasters thing? Now, this is a while ago. <laughs> those were fun. The only thing I really remember from those is um, Ray being caught by the police for recording in his car by the that's, library. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was amazing. He was using the library Wi-Fi. Yeah. Like. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, yeah. That was really, really funny. I remember that. Yeah, that, those were very, those were much simpler times back then. I mean, there was, I bet you could count on one hand. No, not one hand. You could count on, say, maybe three hands, the amount of history podcasters that were out there, at, like back then. I feel that way anyway. I could be wrong, but. Out of the main one, there are just so many now. Oh, I've, so many, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't have time to listen to any of them, but, like, not much has changed in five years, so. Well, well I think we're ready to start then. I'll just. I'll just introduce you the way, well, not exactly the way I introduce everyone else, but back on the podcast, and my guest today is the prince of podcasting to my ambassador of audio, Mr. Jamie Redfern from the History of Podcast Series. How's it going, Jamie? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was a brilliant introduction. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, I'm doing very well. Good. How are you doing, Zach, this, oh. this fine podcasting morning? Oh, this fine podcasting morning slash evening. I'm doing very well myself. Good. In like seven years of podcasting almost, this is the first time I've done a Skype call with someone who's been in the same time zone. Wow. I think. Wow. It's is... always been, yeah, something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I dream of the day someday when, I don't know, you could have like a group Skype podcast call with Everyone from your time zone. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, perhaps. But until then, it's great to have you on. It's great to be able to talk to you about the American Revolution, which I believe you're just, you, you might have a small passing interest in overall. I love the American Revolution. <laughs> no, it's sorry. my favorite revolution. <laughs> that it's was either some, that or the other one. That was some Irish sarcasm there. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was my returning sarcasm <laughs> oh, we right, sarcasmed well. each other oh we did we did i was arts i was out sarcasmed by you which is a <laughs> very good job well no it's it's great <laughs> to have you on and maybe just run through some of the podcasts in case people have stumbled upon this as their first introduction maybe to jamie redford and perhaps they don't know who he is what podcasts are you responsible for well i think if this is their first ever introduction to me i think an opening of me just cackling is probably about as good as it gets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, I, I do a hodgepodge of various different shows. I started many eons ago uh, with my history of Alexander the Great. I also did a show on Hannibal and the Punic Wars, both of which are done. And I've also got two ongoing series. One is a history of the Arab Spring and the modern Middle East. And then I'm doing a history of the United States, which is my main topic right now which is why when zach asked me to be part of this grand adventure that he's doing i was like yes let's do the american revolution mm. that and because i cannot stop listening to hamilton 
Very good. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great. It's great to have you on. It's I love the thing I loved about this whole five years project was that I get to have podcasters on who specialize. I mean, in a way, I don't give them too much of a choice, but I'd like to think that I have them on because I can discern their areas of expertise. And that's really why you're here. So uh, as an expert on the American Revolution, I'm very happy to have you on. Thank you. Yes. Expert. <laughs> that's me. Yeah, Mr. Expert. <laughs> Mr. Expert. I, I walk around with a leather jacket that has Mr. Experts written on the back of it. I get I... beaten up a lot. I get beaten up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably not get beaten up as much as me because I have my own name on all my clothes because all I seem to have is history T-shirts now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Oh, do you, can you bring yourself to wear them? Like, let's just forget about the American Revolution for a second. Sure. So, I did this T-shirt thing a while ago, and as soon as I did it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy a T-shirt of like my show with a logo on it, and I don't think I've ever been able to bring myself to wear it because I'm like, I can't wear something of my own logo on it. Oh, can you do? Jamie, it? let me tell you a story. <laughs> let me tell you the story of. How much Wendell Plumacy Fails t-shirts I have. At this very moment in time, in fact, I'm wearing a Wendell Plumacy Fails t-shirt underneath <laughs> my Wendell Plumacy Fails hoodie, which itself has a Wendell Plumacy Fails <laughs> badge on it. In my pocket are keys attached to a Wendell Plumacy Fails key ring. In my hand right now is a Wendell Plumacy Fails pen. And if you were to look at the back of my phone, I think, yeah, there's a Wendell Plumacy Fails sticker attached to it. So I have no shame. <laughs> I'm just no a walking advert. <laughs> I am. I'm a walking advert. I walk outside. People double take, and if people know me, your your name, you have your name on, like your clothes. You're wearing your name, and I'm kind of like, yeah, why wouldn't I? And occasionally, I I give t-shirts to my friends on the understanding that they wear them tirelessly, but sometimes they slack a bit, and by slack, I mean they wash the t-shirts so they don't wear it every waking moment <laughs> of the day. But the benefit of having about ten different t-shirts in different colors and at this moment in time i'm trying to decide where the best place would be to get more t-shirts and more designs so when i order a sample i mean because of that because of the ordering a sample process i have loads of samples that i just wear i think anna's going crazy and is worried that i don't have any other clothes but it's great (laughs) yeah i have no shame you just gotta own it jamie that's all i i suppose i just need to embrace I mean, I have B-Fit for promoting the podcast. It's not even B-Fit. I think it goes above and beyond B-Fit because I don't really have any shame. I think that's what it boils down to. (laughs) (laughs) The expression, I don't know if you've heard the expression, I have a very brass neck is what Anna always says. I just don't, like, I don't kind of think to myself, oh, someone might get annoyed if if I offer them a a pen. I mean, I was in a bookshop in in Wexford, which is about an hour and a half away from from where I live in, in Wicklow. And I went into a bookshop, and as as is my want, I came out of the bookshop with with about five different books. But mm-hmm. happens while, to all of us. Oh yeah, while yeah. I was while I was buying them, I was talking to the to the girl behind the till, and he kind of got I kind of the feeling, oh, she's kind of nice. She's she's interested in the fact that I'm interested in history. So I I took a bit of a leap, and before I knew it, I'd already given her a badge and a. And a pen and a keyring, and she was delighted. But some people would think that that's weird, and I don't know. I just, I just don't. I even carry around in my bag. I carry around a permanent supply of of merchandise. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I haven't, I haven't gone as far as sticking my own stickers on myself yet. So when I get that far, when I get that far, I think. 
that's how you know <laughs> it's out of control. But yeah, bet you regret asking that question now. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't where I was expecting that to go. No. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there, there's ways and means of, of of getting yourself out there. Perhaps I'm too over the top. Okay, there's no perhaps about it. I am too over the top, but there you go. <laughs> Got to get myself out there, and, and it's worth it if I see people walking around with, with pens or what have you. So yeah, well, anyway, yeah. that was a, a bit of a sidetrack, but hey, I think we're actually ready to get down to <laughs> the whole point of this collaboration. One thing that always fascinated me about the American Revolution, and I don't know how much you've gotten into this yourself, because as far as I know, in the history of the United States, you have, have you you haven't reached the American Revolution at all yet, have you? No, I'm no. nowhere near. I think I'm somewhere <laughs> in like the middle of the 1600s. Actually, yeah. right now, I, I'm in the middle of um, the Native American side of things. So I'm somewhere around 2000 BC. So I've got a ways to go to catch up, actually. Right, just a little bit, yeah. Just yeah. a few thousand years. I originally planned to, about a year after starting the series, to be doing the revolution, and then it just got... I got sidetracked so much by everything. Well, yeah, but in in fairness to you, though, there isn't that much podcasts looking at like a kind of chronological history. So you start into it and then you realize, oh, look at all these things I, I could do instead beforehand. The early history of Virginia, I was expecting that to be one episode and then that turned into 20. Wow. Because I just got that interested in all this stuff that I had no idea that was happening. I mean, because like the early colonial period, it often gets brushed over. Like you often find the story of like the USA beginning... Aside from some cursory stuff about like the Pilgrim Fathers, it just starts with like, oh, and then there was evil King George, and he was a tyrant, and then the Americans rebelled, and they were heroes, and blah blah blah. Yeah, sounds familiar. Something about Lincoln. <laughs> Something about Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love it to just like spend like five years building up to the American Revolution, and then that's my coverage of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the like, Americans did some at Lincoln. Yeah, and, yeah, and then just end like mic drop and then just kind of <laughs> leave a long beep afterwards for like 10 minutes or something. That would go down real well. You're, obviously, you're going to get there eventually uh, at some stage because it's inevitable. Well, when do you think you'll actually stop your coverage of the United States, though? I've been thinking that I'll probably stop like around the end of the Cold War. But okay. now I'm thinking that it's probably going to be far enough in the future that I finish the show or I get to that point that I'll probably end up being able to cover later and it being okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm expecting it might be 10 years in the future that, that happens, so I can probably take it a bit closer. Mad to think, isn't it, that far ahead? Like, I, even with myself, I'm thinking all the projects I've lined up for myself because I'm not, like, I don't get crazily ambitious with these things at all, but thinking far ahead and thinking oh by the time i start this i could be like in my 30s and that's a scary thought i was um calculating like the rate that i was going through episodes and how long it was taking me and i worked out that if i was going at the pace i was like it would take me something like 64 years to get to the present <gasps> wow <laughs> wow okay i thought i was bad jamie good grief like... i'm gonna be doing this until i die <laughs> 
and someone else will have to take it up after you to cover the American Revolution. <laughs> that is that is epic. And you're doing the Arab Spring as well, so it's not like you're just doing one podcast. Yeah, I haven't released an episode in that feed for a while, but we just won't talk about that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> casually avoid talking about the next thing. That's grand. With the likes of the American Revolution, do you find that when when you actually investigate it, I mean, for myself, I know when I look at British history, maybe this is just an Irish thing, but when I look at it, there's this weird kind of, like for me, I find it all really interesting. I find history of the monarchy really interesting. I find literally everything that Britain did interesting in some respects, but maybe I shouldn't, like, maybe there's this idea that because I'm Irish, I shouldn't revel in when Britain succeeded or anything like that. Do you find, <laughs> do you find yourself, this is probably a silly question, but it kind of reflects how bad Irish schooling is, but do you find yourself, when you look at the likes of America, do you find yourself thinking, oh, maybe I should just look at, like, George the Third. maybe George the Third wasn't all that bad after all, kind of thing. It's funny you say that, because I do get that. Like, do you? Um, I feel almost like um if i ever like side with the revolutionaries in it i get some sort of weird like patriotic guilt being <laughs> like oh how can i be rooting against britain when i'm not remotely patriotic in any other sense but i get this bizarre like historical thing in the american revolution mm. where it just gets me yeah on that side it's really interesting seeing different historians perspectives on it because if you read very british version of the american revolution and then meet reads a very american version and you end up with like wildly different versions of what happened absolutely yeah mm. yeah different interpretations Big time. about what was going on what sides people were on in the war that sort of thing yeah yeah i get you there i do get you it's funny actually to be able to track down those books and i think when I was younger, we were just kind of taught, oh, you need to you need to read this book and then find the answer. But as you get older, you realize how many different perspectives on what seems like straightforward things or straightforward events in history. There's so many different perspectives and different ones offer like different nuggets. And I think the nerd, the history nerd in me loves seeing, oh, this is what this guy says and this is what this guy says about it. And I especially loved, is there any kind of, like specific examples of say say something that one historian offered on the American Revolution that maybe y you found especially interesting. It is the glorious cause, the American Revolution, seventeen sixty three to seventeen eighty nine, by Middlecrouch. I started reading this book like a few months ago, and I got really interested. And in oh, it was written in Oxford in nineteen eighty two. Really. With the like, name, like, The Glorious Cause, I assume, like, 1800s. A British book from the 1980s. This historian went into something that I'd never seen in another history, where they went trying to track where the British reaction came from and that particular stubbornness. And then they... Because this is a British history. Mm. So it's in trying to explain that they went into the psychology, uh, the reactions of British, like land-based aristocracy in the mid 18th century, sure, and their reaction to the growth of uh, commercial activity, that, and then crime rates, and then basically saying that all this produced a highly conservative society, which 
was incomprehensible of conceiving of change. And you often find in other histories that they'll look at the ministries of the um, various prime ministers leading up to the leading up to the revolution, like um, Granville Townsend, Lord North. So Lord North in particular, mm-hmm. that he was so unimaginative, and it's always just oh, this particular yeah. minister was unimaginative, rather than looking at exploring why that class of British aristocrat was so unimaginative mm. and then it being a result of them being like almost so worried about the future and about where things were going that they were just clinging on to the past and to a yeah. failing social system of the um, Warpolian setup. That's, See, that's that... what I do. It's like I'm really rambly and then I pull out out of my magical like <laughs> an actual answer. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Don't worry. I'll, I'll edit it together and it'll make it sound like you just thought of that instantly. So. Okay. That'll be nice. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I like stuff like that because I like this idea that it's not just Lord North. I mean, obviously, it's not one man's fault. Like, the great man of history idea, it only goes so far to an extent that guy has to be produced by the system. And then you have to investigate the system in order to really understand what's going on. Like that whole side of things, if you read an American version of the story, and I'm not saying like a brand new American history, I mean something a bit more traditional, they focus so much on George III being a tyrant, and yeah. it's all George's fault. <laughs> Declaration of Independence doesn't mention Parliament once, even though it was Parliament making the decisions. Yeah. Because yeah. it was so much easier to present their case if they were appealing to, like, the king being a tyrant rather than the reality that it was just differing interpretations over what was meant by the sovereignty of parliaments. Mm, mm, yeah, they like a simple punchy story. They don't want a complicated constitutional one. Yes. <laughs> you get into, like, oh, this is what Whig philosophers were thinking about in the middle of the 1700s. A lot of what I've done in my master's as well was kind of look at the the background ideology in British foreign policy. And a lot of it was this fear. And Britain wasn't the only one, but I found it easier to kind of discern in Britain. But the idea that if we lose or are seen to lose, then our prestige will dip and then our security is threatened. And it's all tied up with like national honor and the, and the concept of, of prestige and imperialism. And it kind of... It always existed to a large degree in states. Like, it just looked differently depending on the century, depending on the king. I mean, Louis Fourteenth, he launched wars for glory. Glory, like, glory for the realm, glory for, like, his, his reign and everything like that. On the ambition and understanding that literally his legacy would be what people would say about him when he was dead. But with the likes of Britain, that's kind of changed to... And in, and in a way, I mean, it was fulfilled because as soon as it looked like Britain was in jeopardy and as soon as it looked like it couldn't defeat its colonists far away, the Netherlands, France, Spain all like attacked Britain for various reasons. And I saw, I surprised myself really because I learned something new the second time around remastering this episode, how looking at that, that experience of being attacked when you were at your most vulnerable, especially with a far off colonial venture, that was really replicated years down in the likes of India and needing to defend that 
against the likes of Russia. I just thought that was an interesting kind of con- continuation, really. It really is that aspect of sort of like needing the prestige in order to protect itself. Mm. But at the mm. same time, that combined with, I, mean, I don't want to say idiocy, but the idiocy <laughs> of um, not understanding the benefits that can happen of like a military deterrent, like with how the British planned on reducing their armed forces in America in the lead up to the revolution because they thought that it would save them money by doing so, not thinking that, oh, if there's a revolution, it's going to cost us a lot more money. Mm, mm, Although I guess that's probably a bad example, because I doubt that having a few extra thousand troops was going to prevent the American Revolution. Well, maybe. I mean, it it depends on how, like, a big part of being able to revolt is seeing the likelihood of your own success, and if there's no British presence there, which... The British presence was minimal enough that they had to immediately ship troops in. And those troops weren't even really from Britain in the large a large sense. Most of them were from Hesse. Like, I, I understand your point completely. We can look at the likes of the American Revolution as a kind of watershed moment, which I tend to do in my head without even realizing it, between kind of the old British Empire, like the, the one founded literally in Elizabethan times, And then the new empire, which was slowly coming together in the likes of India. And by the time, by the turn of the 19th century, really, and then combined, of course, with with Industrial Revolution and everything else that went along with that, Britain really just kind of reinvented itself. Would would that be right in saying, do you think? Yeah, I always think in my head of the first British Empire and the second British Empire. Yeah. Like the first one being the one centred on the Atlantic and on like America and the one that was doing the slave trade, and then the second empire centred on um, India. Mm, mm, Yeah, I I feel the same way, but considering the fact that I often get at people who like to put kind of like eras of history in boxes, if you get what I mean, as in like literally the watershed moment, but I just used it there, but I often go on at people for trying to stop measuring one era to the like the whole piece of westphalia example the way people like to cut and copy paste idea of before 1648 europe was like this after 1648 europe was like this and then when you actually investigated it wasn't true at all now i don't you can't really apply that to the british example because to a large extent britain did say okay america's not working let's just focus on the indian case instead i saw i take that and i what i'd probably say is it's not like a, a clear-cut date like after 1776, First British Empire, afterwards the Second British Empire. Like, say, between like the end of the Seven Year War, like, transitioning mm. to maybe about 1800, that there's this gradual shift. Yeah. And that there's no specific moment when it swaps, but by, like, the end of that shift, mm. the British Empire is something fundamentally different to what it was at the beginning of that shift. Yeah. I mean, I think you could almost, you could say, like, it was a certain way up to the point of the end of the Seven Years' War, and then there was a kind of transitional period from about 1763 when that war ended to maybe even the war when the War of 1812 ended, because then you had, in like 1815, you had like Canadians suddenly had like a national identity, which they basically created by defending themselves against the Americans. And that that ties in with issues of like loyalists and everything else that we'll talk about, but... 
No, I think it's nice to have a transitional period almost. Maybe that was kind of the last straw. Britain was kind of like, oh, we burned Washington and we still can't get the colonists back. So, <laughs> hey, let's just focus on India after all. They were right. If you want to make it really poetic, you could like talk about like the transition of the pips, like from Pitt the Elder to Pitt the Younger. Oh, very good. Yeah, that's true. And actually, do you know what? I read a, a book once and it was... It was on like what ifs in history, and on the front of it, it had Elizabeth II, like the current British monarch. She was standing mm-hmm. in front of the White House, and it was like what if America, and it stipulated that if William Pitt the Elder hadn't died when he died, there wouldn't have been the American Revolution because William Pitt the Elder was so intelligent and so smart and everything else that he would have known the right thing to do and the Americans never would have seen the need to revolt in the first place because <laughs> he would have appeased them. Which, of course, I mean, even reading that at the time, which, of course, it goes against the whole idea, what you just said about these aristocrats and these prime ministers and everything else. They are born into a system which teaches them to think a certain way and you can't just not think that way, even if even if you are, like, as well-educated and as... And as capable of you as you might be, if you if you're trained to look at the Americans or revolt against the crown, gasp in a certain way, then of course you're going to think, oh, we had to put this revolt down, or or other things will will jump back up. I know that kind of takes us back to what we already moved on from, but it just occurred to me there. Well, what kind of your thoughts on on what if America? Is there a possibility that America wouldn't have become independent? That sort sure. of thing. Yeah, let's let's, sure. put it, let's put it like that. Maybe I should have just yeah, I should have just clarified that. So this is something I've spent probably the past two weeks just thinking about constantly. Hmm. Is would the American Revolution like was it inevitable? It almost goes against being a historian yeah. to say that something's inevitable. I know, but you kind of feel like if something was inevitable, it was probably the American Revolution. Yeah. To go back to. What I was saying earlier, the different understandings over the sovereignty of parliaments. Mm. If you look at the reaction of, say, the English gentleman to the uh, the 17th century, so Cromwell and the Restoration and all of that, and then the creation of, um, eventually, Walpolean parliamentary system. If you group that together, the whole thing, the basic English gentleman, his take from that would be the sovereignty of parliaments. Mm. Like the idea that Parliament can do whatever it wants. And I think the differing interpretations are, why is that the case? That if you were an English gentleman, you would have the assumption that Parliament itself is sovereign and can do whatever it wants. But if you're a colonial American who would also consider themselves an English gentleman, that their interpretation would be, it's the principle that a body gets its sovereignty by being elected and only that has the right to tax, that that's the lesson you draw from it, that it happens to be Parliament in the case of Britain, but in the American colonies, it would be the colonial assemblies. And the fact that neither side could understand where the other was coming from or was willing to understand where the other was coming from, that I don't see a way around that fundamental difference. Right. No matter how brilliant, say, Pitt the Elder might have been, I can't see a way that down the line that issue won't come up. Yeah, the yeah. Fact that Parliament thinks it can do whatever it wants because Parliament is sovereign, because that's the lesson it learns. And the colonial assemblies 
they won't ever think that Parliament is sovereign. It might not be this specific version of the American Revolution, but some version of it, I think, has to happen because I can't, unless you can reconcile those two views, and I don't see that happening. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I would also say as well, because, I mean, obviously not everyone went along with the American Revolution. There were people left out, like the Loyalists, and that I think that aspect of it always fascinated me because whenever I look at these kind of seminal moments in, say, a nation's kind of founding history. I mean, I know yourself, you you don't like to talk about it, you like to leave it in the closet, but I know you did a history of the Irish Rebellion yourself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can hear you cringing, but I know. Oh, it was so bad, it was so bad. (laughs) Aha, you thought I'd forgotten. Oh, dear. Yeah, the, the idea that there are these founding stories, and I like looking beneath the sheen and seeing what kind of actually happened. Sometimes it's easy to do and sometimes you get absolutely pilloried for doing it. Like I've never received so much kind of, not just, not necessarily hate mail, but kind of like, you just don't know what you're doing at all, do you? After I did the 1916 uh, Rising thing, I think the Mm -hmm. idea that I could, that I could even question the, that I could even question this ground foundational moment in the history of Ireland, it just seemed so impossible and so fundamentally wrong to do so because of that i wasn't well i suppose i wasn't necessarily all that surprised but looking at the american revolution these days finding the likes of loyalists just like in the 1916 right mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns you find people who didn't want the rising at all to happen and didn't think it was the right thing to do but with the likes of the american revolution obviously we're less connected to it emotionally because it happened further back in time but as as far as loyalists go back then at least they had somewhere to go i mean the irish people who didn't want to go along with the rising they just kind of stayed where they were and nothing Mm. i suppose nothing changed fundamentally for them and their lives I suppose where I'm really going with this is the the likes of the Loyalists going up into Canada, some of them staying behind. How much do you know, and this is putting you on the spot, but hey, it's this is, it's me, so <laughs> <laughs> how much do you know about kind of how, if they didn't move to Canada, how they kind of coexisted with the, the more extreme revolutionaries afterwards? I think it's a very interesting topic, looking at how the uh, the Loyalists, what they did, how a lot of it gets brushed over, and you have to dig to find out some of these things. Mm. But one of my favourite examples of a Loyalist who sort of pretended they weren't for the sake of convenience was the grandfather of the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin. Uh. That he was, he did not want independence. 
And the only reason that he didn't get thrown aside, like with the other loyalists, was the fact that he was in Britain as the ambassador when the revolution broke out. That's right. So he had time to just be quiet and see <laughs> where the revolution was going. And when it appeared that, oh, America is going to be independent, then he was suddenly like, oh, yes, I'm for American independence. <laughs> and then he just yeah. goes back to America and he's like, oh, Benjamin Franklin, the great patriot, when he, he really wasn't. <laughs> oh, very good. But the other things that you don't often hear about, stuff like the, um, the inquests into like, ensuring loyalty, like the loyalty oaths that were sent out during the revolution that every American citizen, I, I think this was in uh, like 75 or 76, had to swear an oath to their particular state of loyalty. And wow. if they didn't, then they would, in effect, be blacklisted from society. They could be exported from their states, many were. And if you were a professional, like, say, a lawyer, then you were no longer allowed to practice unless you swore loyalty to the state and said that you would no longer be loyal to Britain and King George. And that is something that you never hear about in the American Revolution. I'm surprised as well. I didn't even I did not know it went that far at all. I thought that the the kind of the people who wanted to leave for Canada did so out of a kind of a moral obligation on themselves, but I mean really they didn't have a choice if they if they wanted to stay loyal. Yeah, it was if you were loyal to Britain then you sort of got kicked out basically either that or you just lied which i think probably did is it because one of the things that you have to think about is to your average person how much do they really care about representation when most people didn't vote yeah yeah. considering it was only the landed gentry so to most people if things were going in the like towards independence would they've just been like oh i don't really care sure i'll just swear loyalty so I don't get kicked out of the country. And then the other thing like in that vein that I find really interesting in terms of like how the version of events has been uh, changed like afterwards to reflect what happened sure. is, and probably the greatest myth of the American Revolution, is the 13 colonies. Because they weren't, th- they weren't 13. There were the ones in Canada as well that people forget about. And the, the original, the um, American radicals plans to include Quebec, like as part of their plans. So it was originally supposed to be 14. And oh. there was an element of the Articles of Confederation where they built in a system for Quebec to secede from the British Empire and join their union because it was always their intention that Quebec be part of the revolution. Never mind the fact that most people in Quebec resented the fact that the American force occupied it for part of the war. And so yeah. wanted nothing to do with joining America. But that's something you don't hear about very often. Mm, very that true. Quebec was originally intended to be one of the original states. Mm, yeah. Stories like that are really important to get a full picture. I mean, it's not like we're saying, oh, the American Revolution was bad. Some people do get very defensive, though. It's almost like you're questioning their right to be a citizen of a particular country, which obviously we're not doing. Oh, not at all. The American Revolution, it's like a fascinating story. And I do, I know that people go over the top with it. But there is something, particularly for the time that it was produced, rather romantic about like the Declaration of Independence, like asserting like the rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's a good idea. Like There was a lot of things wrong with it. 
like almost don't need to be said, like slavery, Native Americans, all of that. Sure. But you're almost doing a disservice to the event if you whitewash it. Yeah. I think you definitely are doing a disservice and you're doing a disservice to people who wouldn't like the way I see it. I mean, if I have a different perspective, whether you think it's true or not, it's important to hear as many as possible because that's how you get as full a picture as possible of the event. And that's what history is about at the end of the yeah. day. And it was um, done by both sides as well. Well, it's part of like the things that caused upsets that Parliament passed, like in addition to all the various acts, like the Stamp Act, uh, the Sugar Acts and all that, was preventing colonists from crossing over like a line in the Appalachian Mountains. Yes, Which really that. annoyed many American colonists. And that is almost always referred to as a good common sense reaction because they didn't want to be causing disruption to the Native American tribes that were living on the other side, and they didn't want the constant war that would happen, that would happen, yeah. like particularly after the um, Pontiac's Rebellion. Sure, yeah, sure. But the thing that gets whitewashed is that the main reason for that happening was the fact that Britain didn't want colonists to be moving westward where they would be out of the reach of British merchants. And they instead wanted them to go to the sparsely populated colonies of Nova Scotia and Florida, ah. where they'd be able to sell them things. <laughs> and then when someone after the fact was like, oh, and this would also be good for the Native Americans, they were like, oh, yes, that's why we did it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's very, that's very good. I See, to me, it was just, and I don't know how you feel about this, but almost because I'm like, oh, uh, like kind of not not against the American Revolution because I'm kind of against oh Britain, like maybe because they're the underdog or something. But I was like, yeah, and the Americans like they they went against that really nice order that told them not to expand into <laughs> Native American land. But of course, that's not true. And like, there obviously <laughs> there's always different angles to it. But it's just funny how I took that at like it's literally at its face value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something I only found out. Like, I think yesterday, actually. Oh, right. And I was okay. like, wow, this is really interesting. But I, I dug that facts up for the first time. Oh, okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. That's yes. Great. <laughs> Brand new facts. Yeah, fresh off the press. Yeah. How do you plan on covering? Now, you're getting up to, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you did do the Aztecs in some form or another. I did do them. Yes. At one stage in the membership feed, yes. Yeah, because I remember you talking about pronouncing all those horrible names that have lots of strange letters in them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, some of them, you just learn how to pronounce, like, oh, they're not pitch then. Teotihuacan. But once you get into, like, some of them, where if you've never seen them before, then it's just a case of, like, Yeah. But I'm As, getting that the same with like Native American tribal names where I just can't pronounce. That's them. what I was going to ask you. Yeah, like with the likes of that. I mean, even the whole is it Iroquois, is it Iroquois debate that that always annoys me. I mean, you know what I mean. Stop. Like there, there's a whole ream of people who have different opinions on how things are supposed to be said or not said. And actually, just before I properly ask you the question, wherever this question is going. I was talking to Kevin Stroud, the History of English podcast guy, and he was saying yeah. that like a lot of the words that he says 
there is no real record of them actually being said. So there's no like actual history of them being said, quote unquote, property. Therefore, mm. the debate continues on how to say them property. So some genius who comes along and says, oh, actually, Kevin, that's not how you say like some word. He's just been told a different way by some other guy. I mean, it's a it's an ongoing debate. But I mean, back to the issue at hand, do you ever get kind of like maybe Bogdan isn't isn't the right way to phrase it, but do you ever kind of think to yourself, oh, I think the main thing I wish is that I knew how to pronounce them <laughs> rather sure. than it being, like, oh, I wish they were called simpler. But I, yeah, the <laughs> ma- or like, why did I pick this topic when I can't pronounce any of it? And yeah. lucky that most people who've listened prefer to laugh at my mispronunciations than correct me. I think as long as that keeps on going, I'm fine with them laughing at me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Rather than it being like, <laughs> oh, you didn't you know that it was pronounced Iroquois? That, that was my impression of the internet, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I love doing impressions of the internet. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, I just wanted to say as well about covering the likes of the United States. As far as I know, do you know of any other like chronological histories of the United States? I know of one other. In podcast form, I mean, obviously. In podcast form, yes. (laughs) Because there are a few about, but they either are local histories or they dot about all over the place. A history of the United States. But I do know that there's a The History of the United States podcast. Right. But I have a feeling that the person who does that, like not to say, not to brag and be like, I'm the superior podcast, but that show only ever has like the most recent 10 episodes in itunes and the rest aren't there so i'm not convinced they entirely know how podcasting works okay because i can't find any of the early episodes for it and i've tried finding them i've tried but aside from that i don't think there's any others okay because what i was going to ask was isn't it weird that that is the case considering it's the united states yeah i'm surprised there aren't more I couldn't believe that when I did it, I was the first person to like try and do it properly. It was like looking for iTunes and being like, surely someone must have done this by now. Like, How mm. can no one have done this? Yeah, and that that's funny you should say that because that's exactly what Mike Duncan thought before he started the History of Rome. And incidentally, after having listened to the History of Rome and Cannibal and the Punic Wars, yours was the second podcast I listened to, mainly because it was like, oh, it's Hannibal. I mean kind of thing like great this guy's doing a history of it and i was kind of thinking to myself like hannibal is such a great podcast i should do a podcast on hannibal <laughs> and yeah it, it, i don't know i suppose it, it went okay i did a singular episode and you did you did sandwiched it in between the franco-prussian war and the russo-japanese war so that should tell you all you need to know about my <laughs> scheduling skills so yeah <laughs> anyway i enjoyed listening to that Oh, did you? Well, it, I, I was an early fan. Oh, really? Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Oh, good, good. Well, now it all comes full circle. Yes, some uh, mutual respect going on here. Yeah, good, good. It's completely respect. true and yeah. not remotely for the tape. <laughs> Definitely wink, didn't bribe you wink. with the T-shirt or anything. Nothing like that. I'm not wearing a when diplomacy fails <laughs> hat with a, a badge on it. I just walk around with a shirt with like a sticker of your face. <laughs> so do i (laughs) well i mean we're coming to i mean this is this has been 
part American Revolution discussion, part podcasting discussion. But the thing I like about these is you can kind of make them their own. They're not really like exclusive, strict, serious talk about this event in history. I like the idea of kind of meeting the podcaster, getting to know them. And with that kind of thing in mind, what always struck me about, because we're, we're friends on Facebook, we, we kind yeah. of keep up with each other to an extent. I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about your experience with academia, because as far as I know, you applied to, like me, you applied to do a PhD. Tell, just talk to me a little bit about that experience, maybe. Okay, so I applied to do a PhD in classics and ancient history at the University of Manchester. My basic idea for a thesis was to look at the, because uh, academically, Rome is my speciality. Sure. Um, specifically, like the late Roman Empire. So what I was planning on doing was looking at the relationship between the later Roman Empire and Sassanid Persia. Because in history, uh, the Sassanids are often viewed as the aggressors, and I didn't think that was the case. So I wanted to reassess that relationship. So I applied for that, and I got a place for the PhD. But what I didn't get was funding for it, so I've ended up not doing that. I reapplied the next year. I think completely rewrote my proposal because it, rereading it, I was like, oh, this is terrible, this proposal. Like, why on earth did I submit this? <laughs> Sent it off again. Was actually really proud of it. And yeah, I just got a rejection again from the AHRC, which oh. it was brutal. I don't know how you found it, mm. but waiting to hear back on that funding just drove me insane. Oh, Jamie, honestly, that was like, I, I waited from... I got the yes for the place in in late January or so, 2016, and and I was working in Costa Coffee at the time, so you had to be like talking to customers, all all that lovely stuff. And I think I got the final no in July, but those six months, like that first half of 2016, I was just miserable because you go through periods of like, oh yeah, I've got this, like it's such a good idea, and then you're kind of thinking, oh, is it though? And then you know, like the whole self doubt thing, yeah. yeah. I had it where, like, because I'd applied for the first year and I already had the place, like, the second time round, I knew that I had the place already because they sort of deferred entry for me while I reapplied for funding. And it was until the middle of June when I found out. And I went through a stage of, like, things progressively getting worse from, like, the middle of February. Like, by mm -hmm. the end of it, I think I was struggling. Like, I couldn't have a conversation with people. Yeah. Like, for, like I'd go out with friends and I'd just be, like, checking my email constantly, even though oh, I knew nothing was going to happen. Big time. Because uh, a lot of my friends do PhDs and are in academia. So I'd have them talking about it constantly. Oh, and yeah. they'd be talking about how they got the funding. I just, I think I had times where I just, like, left, where I just stood up and walked away because I was like, I can't listen to this. It's driving me mad. Yeah, yeah. So in the end, it was almost a relief. Mm, mm to like find out either way even though it didn't go the way i wanted it to yeah oh i get you i do i completely um, the, the whole like i didn't want to do any i didn't want to be around people fortunately for me i didn't have any friends that like did phds or tried i don't know like over here it's like you go abroad or you just don't do the likes of a phd even a master's I mean, the Masters was the one time I got to really be a history nerd with my friends. And even then, I still took it further than I think they were willing to. But 
I mean, I'm going to reapply again, and I'm going to reapply as a part-time PhD this time. Are there options for you to do that yourself? I'm not sure. It's something like I haven't given up completely on the idea of it. I have like very strong connections with the University of Manchester. Sure. Like I'm friends with um, a bunch of the lecturers there. Mm. Um, so I think I was going out for dinner with a few of them back in December of last year. And right. one of them said to me, like, oh, Jamie, like, I'm sorry that it didn't work out, but promise me that you'll reapply because I don't want like, academia to lose you. Like, mm. you need to stay here. You need to be doing things with us. That's like, great. Um, which is really encouraging to hear. Of course. It's the fact that those people aren't the people in charge of funding. Yeah. And my main issue with academia at the moment is the funding pro other i have a few issues with academia which mm-hmm. i'm i'd say the funding process is not good applying for phds it's not good it's um also impossible to work out what's happening and it's so dependent on what's happening each year yeah exactly it mm. depends on like who's applying to what like um I'm not sure how it was for you, but the way it worked is that my university basically applied for me. Like, I provided the material, Mm. and then they applied as part of a group with six other universities for funding to the HRC. And how it worked is, I think between them, they got something like 20 scholarships, and then they got to divvy those up between them. Right. it was all dependent then on who had applied for what over the various uh, departments and then getting a balance between them about who was... There was an element of what you'd chosen to study being, like, diverse. Yeah. Like, so they had a good spread of subject matter rather than what it was you were applying for. Sure, yeah. But oh, I got I a sense you. of that. Yeah. Did you get a sense that it's a very closed-off system? Yeah. But, but I mean, that's the thing with like academic jobs as well, is mm-hmm. that it's often very hard to do anything unless you have like the right degree yeah. from the right place. Almost matters more like who you know rather than and like being able to line yourself up to get that job interview rather than how good uh, you were. Yeah, absolutely. And I think who you know, I mean, that's literally the definition of trying to get a job or anything, to, trying to get ahead in Ireland. So I really found with, with the likes of academia applying for grants, I applied for, I think, three different places. And yeah, gradually got the nose from each one of them. But I found it so annoying. But at the same time, I took heart from the fact that, and you could take heart from this as well, the fact that we know what we're doing is good. We know that we are providing maybe in time this will be properly recognized but we are providing a real service to history not in an arrogant way but because we are giving people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily get a chance the opportunity to listen to stories in history or delve into history that they otherwise wouldn't have because they might think oh that's just a dusty book or oh that's, there's no way that could be interesting it's too dry to me etc but we we open these stories up and we bring them out to people and i think you can definitely take heart from that Whatever happens in the future, and I think I wanted to say this to you for a while, because sometimes you just need to hear these things, you know, <laughs> like you need to hear that you are good and you are good at what you do and you're valuable to history. That academic was right. And if if I was there in person, I'd buy you a, a Guinness right now and make sure it was properly pulled and all that. But 
yeah, I mean, you deserve to succeed. You deserve to do well in academia. And I do. I wish you all the best, Jamie. I really do. Thanks. I, I Yeah, same to you, honestly. Mm. Like, I was following, like, your PhD application, like, just as closely as I was mine. Yeah. On that note, of how did you find that academics responded to finding out that you did a podcast? Or did you tell them about it? Yeah, I mean, it depends sometimes because I find there's a fine line between looking like you're sucking up, looking like you're a weirdo and looking like you're enthusiastic. Sometimes all those three things come together and there's just nothing you can do about it. I found Mm -hmm. one guy in particular who really got me like kind of reignited my passions because you UCD, University College Dublin, it's not exactly like you feel kind of like you're a number and it's hard to really believe that they actually care about you. In many cases, the system doesn't, but you get a particular lecturer or academic who really does. And I got one who did, fortunately. And mm-hmm. I had him, I had him and I had my supervisor and they both kind of, I know, I don't know, like one, the one guy really, he he said he listened to the podcast, but I knew that the other guy didn't, but he didn't strike me as the kind of guy who would. And he didn't strike me as the kind of guy who thought it was really worthwhile, which, and he was my supervisor, but I, I like, <laughs> I know, and and I, in a way, it was annoying because I wanted to talk to him about it, and I wanted to say, "Look, this is what I do," kind of thing. But like the other guy, the other guy who wasn't my supervisor. I mean, he took me out to dinner. He he basically persuaded me to apply to Cambridge, even though I didn't think I should, and that kind mm-hmm. of. And I think he's a genuine fan, whether he's listened to all of the podcasts or not. But it's the same as well. The same thing. I went to the BBC again through nepotism, really, but. I went to the BBC and had a kind of interview with their content people there. And just being told that what you have is good and is worthwhile is immensely important. And I think I was looking for a long time. I was looking for the kind of gratification that kind of told me, well, academics say it's okay, so it is good. It's worth my time. But then you could spend all those hours trying to get feedback from a a, a lecturer who just doesn't email back. And that yeah. would be that would be a waste of time. But then at the same time, you could get an email from someone who says, hey, I really enjoyed what you did with the July crisis. I mean, I never thought of it that way before. And it really opened my eyes and everything. And I have so like I have and I'm sure you do as well, the the emails that you get out of the blue and they kind of just make your day. And that person might not think extensively into it. But once once you get it, you're like, this is why I do this. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I think my one of my favourites was, um, I can't remember, it might have been an email from someone, where they basically said that they really wanted to do a degree in history, but were talked out of it, they never got around to doing it, and they now were doing a job they didn't particularly like. Mm. But being able to listen to my podcast was giving them access to the information they weren't able to get. Yeah. And that was like, oh yeah, I'm doing a good thing here. Like. Mm. That makes it worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to hear from academics being like, oh, yes, what you said was very insightful. But yeah. is, that why I'm, is that why I'm making this? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think it's a bit of both, though. It is. Well, yeah. I mean, it's always yeah. good to get like feedback from someone. But I mean, like the likes of my dissertation that I did, my supervisor told me afterwards because he like it's weird because he's kind of stoic. So you don't really know what he's thinking, but Mm-hmm. I know from hearing gossip, like I know that he's proud of me as far as a supervisor can be. Because when I got I got the award for it, and mm-hmm. Lord knows what that award even meant because I didn't see any anything from that award. But that's another <laughs> story altogether. That's UCD for you. 
but he told me like a month before he was meant to because he was so excited and like he told when i asked him afterwards like oh oh like what what do i do with it and everything and then he spilled the beans and he wasn't meant to at all the other person who actually corrected my dissertation like with him and kind of judged it and he was like this amazing like historian author who i like looked up to and everything and i was like i can't like first my first thought was good lord i can't believe that guy was stuck reading my dissertation <laughs> and he's the guy who i would he's the guy i used my quote voice for i mean like it's it's mad to think of it that way so yeah i mean there is like having looked at all these all these historians that i quote i mean to an extent it would be amazing if one of them said oh i love that you're doing a podcast kind of thing but in a way i think that's almost mutated to kind of look at other podcasters like for the likes of this being able to have yourself on being able to have robin pearson on for a history of byzantium being able to have kevin stroud on like from history of english it's great and that's gratification in a way even if the likes of them are just as busy as i am with their own pod Mm -hmm. babies so they don't really get a chance to say oh zach your work is really amazing and i'd be like oh stop it you kind of thing (laughs) like you know i mean I don't know, should we start a a self-help kind of club to be like, we are good podcasters, damn it, after all. I don't know. (laughs) An odd thing as well, because it's so insular Mm. as well. Yeah. That with other things, you'll, like in a a day-to-day job, you'll see other people, you'll be able to see like whether you're doing things right or not. But with podcasting, it is so much like speaking into the void. Mm. And then you've got no idea whether you're doing it right or like whether the people that you want to hear it will hear it. Yeah. Or the things that you think like, oh, this is terrible. And then people will be like, oh, that was really good. And then (laughs) you have this one episode that you spend so long working on and you craft it meticulously. Mm. And then like, no one cares. I know. (laughs) So you understand me, Jamie. I feel like we're like, I feel like you're like my spirit animal, as the kids <laughs> say these days. Janey Mac, yeah. It's always the things that you don't particularly invest all your love and time into that kind of give you the best rewards, in a sense. Yeah. Or like the spur-of-the-moment decisions, maybe like an odd ad-lib that people will be like, oh, yeah, that was really good. Yeah. Rather than being like that one sentence that you just couldn't get right and you spent like half an hour moving the words around trying to get it to sound okay. <laughs> I'm like, no one cares about that. But yeah, in, in seriousness, though, I I must. Um, if you ever find yourself in well in Ireland at all, and if I ever find myself, the the provisional plan at the moment is to go to Cambridge 2019, January 2019, probably. Mm-hmm. And if that ever, if hopefully that happens, but yeah, Manchester isn't. Well, I don't know. Manchester probably is really far away. I'm terrible at geography in general but british geography we were never taught that in in school despite it being right next to us so <laughs> cambridge shorthand. is like three hours away from manchester by train right okay oh that's doable that's definitely yeah. doable but yeah the, the point is yeah we should definitely meet up sometime because we really should yeah yeah it's been it's been really good to have you on we must do it again sometime not not even like like just even for friends sake i mean it's yes it's great it's great to keep up with you and everything else and i really do i mean i did mean what i said i mean i really like the fact that the likes of us i feel like people will look back at the likes of us in the future and say oh those guys were real pioneers i mean no one even taught them what to do and sure they stumbled at the start but eventually they did really really well and (laughs) 
Now they're famous. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I haven't even been on TV yet. You've been on TV for crying out loud. So <laughs> I was. That that was a weird. St- that was a weird story. Yeah, I'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll need to do another one because that's a good story. There. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. definitely. Even just for that, I'll find. Yeah. I'll find a few funny things to talk about. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jamie. I really thank really you really for having me. It. Oh, an absolute pleasure. And say, people want to find Mister History of Podcast. Where would they go to find you? I almost gave my address out then. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, I don't want to do that. Um, if you want to find me online, the best way of doing that is probably on Twitter, at History Jamie, or um, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. The history of podcast.com is my website, and if you want to uh, yell at me for something that I've said today, unwhitewashing of the American Revolution has offended you and you wish to correct me, uh, the email address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Sure. Great. Yeah. Okay. It's funny I actually forgot that we even talked about the American <laughs> Revolution. I'm sure I'm sure people will still enjoy it anyway. Thanks a million for coming on, Jamie. Thanks very Cheers. much. Hey, what did you think? I don't know about you, but After I'd finished that episode, I felt pretty good. I felt pretty good, not really because we'd talked loads about the American Revolution, but I felt good because I feel like there was someone else in podcasting world that understood me and understood what I'd been through and understood that it's hard sometimes. It's hard to do this and, well, I mean, we search for vindication from the people who we feel should be vindicating us. I mean, the people who are qualified to, well, talk about the things that we podcast about, the academics, obviously. And it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, nine times out of ten, academics don't want to know for whatever reason. You could get frustrated about it. Sometimes I get very frustrated about it because I feel like I'm producing history and I know that it's good quality because you guys tell me it is and I feel like I'm doing good. But they just don't seem to see it that way. Some of them do, a very few of them do, but it'll be nice if I got some more feedback. But hey... I'm not bitter, I'm not annoyed, because I've got you guys instead, and that is far more important and far more valuable than having some stuffy academic say, oh, well, yes, that was very good, but that other time, see what I'm doing? <laughs> Imitating people, it's great. It's great. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it, guys. I'm going to take my leave now. Bit of a longer collab episode, but sure you'll agree it was worth it. Anyway, make sure to remember to check out Jamie Redfern, and of course, give us both some love online, because, hey, we live for your love. We don't just live for podcasting, we live for love as well. So yeah, thanks for listening, guys. I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.